Good morning, friends. So glad that you're here, worshiping with us, hearing from God's Word together. I pray that uh, you leave this morning encouraged and challenged uh, to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. <clears throat> the, the grand motivator in the human life, if you haven't recognized this yet, is the desire to be happy. Everybody in this room desires to be happy, and we go about that different ways, uh, using different means. But even the things that end up hurting us began with the intent on making us happy. This is why we do everything we do, is because we want to be happy. And, and some of you teenagers were saying, well, I don't mow the lawn or do the dishes because I want to be happy, right? Well, I, I'll bet you that you do. I'll bet each of us does everything we do as distasteful as it is because we want to be happy. I think teenagers that might disagree with me would say that uh, my parents are forcing me to do these things. And I would say to you, well, if you obey your parents, then you'll be happy. If you disobey them, you'll be unhappy. So because you want to be happy, you'll obey them and you'll do the dishes or mold the lawn. It's a pursuit of happiness no matter what we do. Um, Blaise Pascal said, even the person who kills themselves is doing so because they desire happiness. It's universal. All of us process things the very same way. We, we go to our jobs that we don't like. We eat food that we don't like. We do exercise that we don't like because we want to be happy. We continue to do these things that we say we don't like to do, um, not because we like them, but because if we don't do them, we'll be unhappy, right? And so we pursuing happiness, we want to pursue doing things that are unpleasant for the time being. I think this is our experience, common shared experience. My wife and I were watching a sitcom a week ago, and <clears throat> the actor, actor had a great line in there that I think is useful here this morning. He said, the reason I exercise is because I hate my body. <laughs> I think that's actually pretty insightful. Uh, it wasn't that he liked exercise so much, but he hated the way he looked. And so in order to be fit, in order to look better, he went ahead and submitted to this weightlifting running thing that he was doing. Isn't this you? It's me. I know that. We do things that we don't like because if we don't do them, we end up unhappy. In Psalm 119, verse 162 is... Uh, idea that I think supports this. I think the author in Psalm 119 has repeatedly connected joy and happiness to God's Word. Let me, let me ask you, before you stop in one, at verse 162, just to turn to the very beginning of Psalm 119 and look at verses 1 and 2. This kind of language is also used throughout the Psalms, including Psalm 1. But he begins this great chapter that we've been studying for a few years now with these words. Blessed, and what did we learn that word meant? Happy. Happy are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his commandments and who seek him with their whole heart. And then he continues to write, sprinkling throughout this great psalm, these same concepts, happiness, contentment, joy, peace, all these things come to those who will 
flood their souls, saturate their minds with God's word. And so when we come to verse 162, we're almost numb to this stuff. When we read this verse, I rejoice at your word. Okay, you said that a hundred times. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I, wanna, I want to ask you to, to walk with me this morning as we try to unpack the important message behind this simple verse. I rejoice at your word like the one who finds great spoil. The author obviously believed that the word of God brought joy and happiness. And so if indeed, from what we, I've just mentioned to you, God's word is supposed to bring happiness to us, why is it so difficult for us to prioritize it? Why is it that we struggle so greatly with making the Bible an important part of our daily lives? Well, I think the answer lies just below the surface of this text today. And so let's dig into it. The first thing I want to point out to you, I think, is on the surface, not under the surface, but on the surface. Getting joy requires a fight. Getting joy requires a fight, not unlike working out. If I were to put in front of you, <clears throat> imagine this with me if you would, a bowl of quinoa and a bowl of ice cream of your favorite flavor, which would you choose if there were no consequences? No matter what you put in, on the opposite end of quinoa, I'll choose that. All right? Quinoa, I think, is an invention of Satan and his minions. But for those of you who may put up with quinoa, you get my point, right? We would all choose ice cream over quinoa if there were no consequences, right? That's obvious. The reason that we choose quinoa is because we're trying to lose weight. And we're afraid of that monster called the scale if we eat ice cream. And so we discipline ourselves, we fight the urge to eat ice cream because we want to be happy when we step on those scales, right? That's why we do most of the things we do. Now, this is the case with education. Uh, if you want to graduate from college, you must skip parties. And so the people who stay in that stuffy library and study are the people who are going to graduate and be happy. The people out throwing the frisbee are the people who aren't going to graduate and not be happy. And so we stay in our rooms, we skip parties, we eat quinoa to be happy. All right? <laughs> In this verse here, verse 162, I rejoice at your word like the one who finds great spoil is the key to getting joy from God's word. Finding great spoil. I want you to look at the verse. Finding great spoil, which is at the end of the verse, is in parallel with rejoicing or joy. And that's intentional by the author. He's put them on parallel terms. Finding spoil and joy, and the, what, what's, what does spoil assume? If you're thinking about spoil, what's it assume? A fight, right? There's no spoil without fight. You, you can't get spoiled unless you fight, unless you're willing to go into battle. To find joy, you must fight. 
is what is being taught here to us. The, the expression like one who finds great spoil communicates this, that this joy isn't gained without conflict. Spoil comes from a valiant fight, no fight, no spoil. It's as simple as that. Jesus said this in Matthew 11. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of God is taken by force, Jesus said. You must fight if you want the kingdom of God. You must fight if you want the joy that comes with the kingdom of God. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, share in suffering as a good soldier. 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which, to which you were called. It's a fight. Those who receive the spoil of joy are those who fight to have their hearts and their minds saturated with God's word. That is my thesis this morning. Those who receive the spoil of joy are those who fight to have their hearts and minds saturated with God's word. Unless you're willing to have the word of God pour over your soul through study, reading, meditating, and so forth, it's not going to produce the spoil of joy that we all want and that we hear some great rare individuals have, actually. What we'll be settling for is a mediocre, joyless Christianity, unless we're willing to fight. And what's interesting is that we're willing to fight for less important things. We're willing to fight for physical and emotional temporary joy, but seem to resist the things that are important to fight for. We're willing to fight to get our way at home, to be able to watch what we want on TV, to get what we want to, for dinner. We're willing to fight with anyone, really, to get what we want. We're willing to go to, to battle. But when it comes to putting up a fight for spiritual eternal joy, we seem quick to look for an exit. We're ready to say, ah, it's not worth the battle. Why? Because we're convinced that being able to watch our sitcom will bring us more joy than reading the scriptures. We're not convinced that the Bible can actually bring joy, which is why we don't fight for it. I want to unpack this for you today. First of all, by telling you that joyful Christianity, joyful Christianity is a fight. Joyful Christianity is a fight. John Piper said, when the powers of darkness are arrayed against you and aim to destroy your joy forever, nothing is more precious than to have the word of God ready for battle. The fight for joy is not for the unarmed. Do you want joy, Christian friend? Do you want your Christian life to be marked by joy? Do you want to actually influence the people in your life that you love? Do you want your Christianity to be attractive to them, to those that you love, like your children, your neighbors, your loved ones? Then you better be joy, joyful. You better fight for joy. Dr. Joe Aldrich, who was a professor at Multnomah School of the Bible when I attended, used to say this a lot. Being a Christian should make you look like you've been weaned on a dill pickle. Being a Christian should make you look like you've been weaned on a dill pickle. His point was that there's a lot of Christians, Christians that are not happy people. It looks like they've been weaned on a dill pickle. Those two things shouldn't be going together. 
Christianity and discouragement, Christianity and no joy, those two things should not be in the same sentence, is Aldrich's point, and which is my point right now. True joy isn't just for a select few, those superhero Christians, people like Elizabeth Elliot and Jim Elliot, and you know, all these guys that are famous and we read about, oh, they're, of course they're happy, they're super Christians. No, the Lord desires each of his people to be joyful people, including you, believe it or not, even in your circumstances. But here's the kicker. It doesn't come without effort. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil, one who has fought the fight. Paul never tried to hide the inevitability of Christian warfare. He told Timothy to suffer as a good soldier. He called Archippus and Epaphroditus fellow soldiers. He told the Ephesians to put on the armor of God. He never tried to minimize the reality of spiritual warfare. None of the New Testament authors tried to minimize that reality. There's no hiding of the fact that we're in a war as you, as you read through the New Testament. It's right on the top of the page. It's in the headlines. This is a basic understanding as you read through the New Testament. We must fight, Christian friend, we must fight because spiritual warfare is what makes marriage and parenting very difficult. Spiritual warfare ruins our friendships. Spiritual warfare causes us to get into debt, to watch too much TV, to visit bad internet sites, to buy stuff we don't need, to demand our own way, and to think we deserve more than our neighbor. Those are all in the realms of spiritual warfare for the Christian. Things we must go to battle against. In spiritual warfare, it's important to know that who the enemy we're fighting, who is it? Remember we read this morning, we heard read, it's not flesh and blood. It's not your ornery neighbor. It's not your unreasonable spouse or boss. It's not that crazy child of yours. Not that at all. It's not flesh and blood. It's important that we know who the battle is. Who are we going to fight? Do you want joy? We, know who to, we need to know who to fight. Who is the enemy? Who's the foe? We know, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil, the Bible tells us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's look at those briefly. The world. The fight against the world is not a battle against people, per se, the people of the world. If it weren't for those crazy liberals, we'd have a great community here, wouldn't it? No, that's not what we're, we're after here. The people of the world are not our enemies. They are the victims of the enemy. Our, our fight is against the worldly system, and it's a subtle enemy. A lot of times it, it, it traps you. You don't even know that it's coming. Um, you, you have to be very careful, otherwise it sneaks up on you and gets you into trouble quickly. The world has tripped up so many people. Jesus identified these folks in his parable of the sower in Matthew 13. He said, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world there are what I'm talking about, that enemy of the world. And so what are the cares of the world? The cares of the world are the influences that come from the world that want to rob us of our joy. They promise one thing, but something else happens. It's the bait and switch. It's saying if you do this, then this will happen when it never really does. 
It's trying to, to lure you into a belief or an objective to accomplish superiority over you, but never really produces the joy it promises. That's the world. Promises this, delivers this. And we buy it, don't we? We buy it so often. Well, it said this, I mean, it said I'll have a lot of pretty girls around me if I buy that car. That's the world and the lust of the flesh. And by the way, that's another thing you need to know. These enemies that we have, the world, the flesh, and the devil, cooperate regularly with one another. They, they go into it together against us. So you need to be aware of that also. But we need to know that the first enemy that we're going to face is the world. Secondly, is the flesh. It's that thing that you're sitting in right now, your body, and everything that goes along with your body, including its desires. The body is something that, that remains even after conversion. Even after we're promised everything will be made new, you wake up after you become a Christian, it's the same person looking in the mirror. I thought everything was new. You know, I could use something new, right, you think. Well, you still have the residue of sin and all that's attached to the body of sin in which you live. That tent in which you live is a sinful tent. And so it doesn't go away when you come to Christ. You don't, uh, you no longer have to worry about what, sin? No, it's, it's the part of what you have, your body, your flesh, the desires of that flesh. You, you want another taste of ice cream. You want another episode of that movie or, or that show. You, you, you want superiority over the person in the argument. That's the flesh. The battle with the flesh, of course, exhibits itself early on in our lives when we learn the word mine, right? That this is one of the first words that you and I learn, that our children learn, and that is a demonstration of our battle with the flesh. That's mine. You can't have that. Paul wrote that he had to do daily battle to keep his body under control, to keep it, to bring it under subjection. Paul exhorted each church that he wrote to to put down sin, to actively fight against sin. Remember Colossians, he said this in chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. All enemy of the flesh. Okay? The third enemy is the devil. And like I said, these, these enemies cooperate often. You know that Satan is alive and well, and we need to make sure that we don't think he's not. I think minimizing the influence and danger of the enemy is a critical error in spiritual growth and spiritual health in our pursuit of joy. So we need to be conscious of him, not overly conscious and afraid of him, but concerned. Let me tell you why. Because what is currently on the mind of Satan and his demons that help him um, rob your joy. You know what he's thinking about currently? Ways to trick you. Ways to upend you. Ways to rob you of joy. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. He'll avoid your weaknesses and attack your strengths. He knows what you and your spouse argue about. He knows what things you struggle with online and on TV. He knows what foods you shouldn't be eating. And so he's there waiting for an opportunity to pounce, almost like a lion. Let me read that for you, in fact. 1 Peter 5.8. 
Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He wants to take you down and out. I received a, a text from a friend here at Sun Valley this week. Um, and it was a text, uh, a quote from Joel Beakey. And amazingly, it related directly to this sermon. Listen to this quote. If you are a true believer, Satan hates you because you bear the image of Christ, because you are the peculiar workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus unto good works, and because you were snatched from his power, that is, Satan's power. You deserted Satan and fled his territory. By grace, you acknowledge Christ as your Lord and Master. You testify with Peter that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Satan hates you because Christ is within you and because you love Christ. The devil is an enemy because you love Christ. He's going to do everything in his power to take you out. And one way he does that is to rob your joy. Because of these enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's important that we, f this, we think of it in certain ways. All right, And I have three ways I want you to think about this fight. This fight requires decisive action. This fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil requires decisive action. The physical warfare a soldier may be called to, or the army that he's with is called to, uh, sometimes can be assigned to non-combat positions, right? Uh, you can be in the army and not be on the front lines. You can be a cook. You can be a radio operator. You can fly drones from Las Vegas over the Middle East. You don't have to be in combat. That's not the case with spiritual warfare. No one remains neutral. You can't be like Switzerland and say, ah, oh, we're not on anybody's side. No, that's not how it works. In spiritual warfare, there must be decisive action. There's no spectators involved. In spiritual warfare, we, we don't have the option to claim neutrality. Once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're issued a combat uniform. That's it. So we need to put the armor on. Secondly, this fight requires universal action. Universal action. No believer is exempt, in other words. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor, if you're an elder, if you're a seminary professor, if you're a janitor, a school teacher, a lawyer, it doesn't matter what you are. If you're a Christian, you're in the battle. If you're old, young, rich, poor, every, every single Christian is drafted into the infantry in the Lord's army. There's no one who gets a pass, no matter what your position, no matter what your part in the church is. So you might as well strap the sword on, right? Thirdly, this fight requires constant action. It, re it requires decisive, universal, and constant action. I, I, this is the one that, that gets me the most. I, I wish there were times where we could take a break. I wish there was a plateau that we could reach and have a little bit of a break from the intensity of fighting all the time, but that never comes. There's no breather, there's no timeouts, there's no vacations. From the day you come to Christ until the day you see him face to face, the battle rages. Didn't you, don't you wish it wasn't so? Your tongue will always need to be guarded and you'll take your tongue with you on vacation. You take your mind with you to work, and your mind is the seat of the problems, right? As long as you're breathing, the battle is on. 
The fight begins at spiritual birth and ends with physical death. William Gurnall was a Puritan who wrote extensively on spiritual warfare, and I'd encourage you to read his book, The Christian in Complete Armor. If you don't want to read that, it's a massive volume. If you don't want to read that, you could pick up a family daily devotional. It takes literally five minutes to read, um, and it just takes out um, different uh, sections of his great work and lets you think on them daily, which is wonderful because we're in a daily battle. Sherry and I have gone through that a few times, but William Gurnall, the Christians in Complete Armor, Daily Devotional. This is what he said in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor. Cowards never won heaven. Do not claim that you are begotten of God and have his royal blood running in your veins unless you can prove your lineage by his heroic spirit. To dare to be holy in spite of men and devils. Do you have our captain's heroic spirit? That's what it takes if you're going to be a successful, joyful Christian soldier. Dear friends, we need to be sure that the sum total of our Christianity isn't attending church a few times a month. It, it, it isn't just praying over our meals or smiling at strangers. All those things are good and we should do them. But that isn't the sum total of our Christian experience. Our Christian experience fundamentally is warfare. It's a fight. Are you engaged? Or do you think that you're sitting on the sidelines cheering on the rest of us? Friends, authentic Christian lives must consist of more than just looking like everybody else around us. We can't afford not to pray earnestly, not to spiritually battle, not to sweat it out in difficult circumstances. We're warriors. Get used to it. Being in a spiritual fight brings great comfort, though, to us. Let me tell you why. Fighting usually doesn't bring comfort, does it, in any situation? It does here. You know why? Because if you're in the fight, it means the Spirit's in you, the Holy Spirit. The enemy is not going to engage in battle with their own. If you're out there calling yourself a Christian but experiencing no spiritual warfare, what does that say? But if you, in fact, are struggling against the world, the flesh, and the devil, daily doing battle, daily fighting with all your might, it means you have an opposition. It means you have a Savior. What wonderful truth is that, friends? Do you sense that there is actually a battle raging in your soul, in your mind? Is the battle raging around you? And just this morning, I experienced this walking into this room, a raging battle. And I happen to be more attentive to it because of what I'm preaching on. But nevertheless, it was there right in my face. Listen to what, the way Paul describes this in Galatians 5. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. And the desires of the Holy Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. The Holy Spirit doesn't want, to do, want you to do what your flesh wants you to do. They're in conflict they oppose each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, if you are experiencing this conflict, Christian friend, be encouraged. The Holy Spirit dwells within. You're on your way to heaven. You're on your way to change. You're on your way to becoming like Jesus. <laughs> William Grinnell again. Can Christ be in your heart and you not know it? Excuse me? Is what he's saying? 
Can one king be dethroned, self, and another crowned in your soul and you not hear a scuffle? (laughs) Wait a minute. Friends, if there's a scuffle, the Holy Spirit's present and you're on your way to heaven. Secondly, joyful Christianity is a fight of faith. Joyful Christianity just isn't a fight. It's a fight of faith. It's, It's on the level of faith. The authentic Christian believes what the Bible says about the Christian life. We actually believe that the Bible is our standard and guides us through spiritual skirmishes. We live by faith in what the Bible teaches about all things. It's a fight of faith. We believe and lean on the truth of Scripture. We read that we have an enemy. We read that we have a conquering hero who is our captain named Jesus. He has overcome the world. We know that there remains a fight because Scripture says there is. We must fight to keep the faith. True Christianity is a fight of faith. It's a fight to know and embrace sound doctrine, which is teaching about our fight. Doctrine is required for your salvation. Doctrine is required for your sanctification. Doctrine will be required for your glorification. Doctrine is required for your joy in the fight. It's a fight of faith. And then next, thirdly, I want you to see that joyful Christianity is a good fight. You know, we are diligent to train our children not to fight. Don't fight, you know, stop arguing, be kind. Don't fight. How many times have you said that to your kids? Well, joyful Christianity is a good fight. I have a few reasons why. First of all, because we have a good commander. This is a good fight we're in because we have a good commander. And see if this doesn't make you joyful. The commander and captain of our souls is Jesus Christ. He has perfect wisdom, infinite love, and is all-powerful. Our commander has never lost one battle. (laughs) How would you like to be a part of that battalion? If you were to sign up in the army and you could choose which battalion leader or commander you were going to serve under, and you had a bunch of options, and one said, I have never lost one fight. (laughs) Who would you sign up with? This guy who says, I've lost 18? No, you're going to sign up with the guy who says, I've never lost one skirmish, one fight. Our commander has never lost a battle. His strategy for spiritual warfare is flawless. He never makes a mistake in judgment. He knows each of his infantrymen, you and me, personally, by name. He knows our weaknesses and our strengths, knows exactly how to engage the enemy with what we've got at our disposal. We have a good commander, which makes us a good fight. Secondly, this is a good fight because we have good weapons. I uh, was invited last summer to go golfing with my college roommate who lives up in Cleelum. And so I got excited about it. I hadn't seen him in a while and wanted to go play golf at this golf course I'd never played golf on. And so in my, in my hurry, I threw the first set of clubs I came across in the garage into the back of my truck. I raced up to Cleelum, all excited, put my golf shoes on, put my golfing glove on, get out the clubs, and they're my son's clubs. Wrong clubs, too short, lousy quality. I don't, I, now I know why he golfs so poorly. It's, it's the clubs, right? Which gave me the choose to golf poorly on that day. You gotta have the right weapons, right? I mean, you, you people know this if you're musicians. Do you wanna play with a, with a tinny sounding guitar? 
Do you want to have a piano that's out of tune? No, you, you want to have the right equipment. Okay, you're a carpenter. Bad tools make bad carpentry, right? Lousy weapons make lousy soldiers. Our weaponry is perfect. It's perfect. We sang about it in the first song we sang this morning. We have great weaponry as Christians. What is our weaponry? The Spirit of God, the Bible tells us. Uh, the song that we sang tells us the Spirit of God dwells within us. Talk about important, strong, valuable weaponry. The Spirit of God himself lives within us. And then we have the Word of God along with this list of weapons. The Word of God supplying the same information the Holy Spirit of God emphasizes, encouraging things, strengthening things, mind-clearing things. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, and then the Church of God. Friends, do you know when you came to Christ you were saved to the church? You were not saved to individual private operations. You're not a special ops agent as a Christian. You were saved to the church. You have been given the weaponry of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Scriptures, and the Holy Church. It's the best weaponry on the planet. We have no reason to lose. We have a great commander. We've got great weapons. Next, we have good promises. We are promised good promises. Not just that you'll retire with a oh, $550 a month pension. No. Our promises are good promises, and they're certain because of the one who's promising. He promises that he'll never turn anyone away who comes to him. So if you're a little timid about that, whether or not God will receive you, get rid of that. Get it out of your mind. He says, I will turn no one away who comes to me. Whoever comes to me just says, I will not cast out. So you have free access to the greatest commander ever. He promises that sin will not have dominion over us. He promises that, that he will complete the work he started, Philippians 1.6. He, he promised that no soldier will ever be lost. I will never leave you or forsake you. No soldier has ever gone missing in the Lord's army, has never been left for dead on the battlefield. No soldier of Christ has ever been buried at sea or left on foreign soil, ever. We have good promises. We have good weapons. We have a good commander. This is a good fight. It's a good fight because we're fighting important battles. Have you ever gotten into something at work or at school? At school, you're given busy work. When, you know, teachers don't know what to do, and so they give you busy work. Didn't you used to love that as students? Or if you're presently a student, you just love it when they just assign a bunch of stuff, and it has no point, just to keep you out of their hair. Don't you love that? And of course you don't. You want to have meaning and purpose. Uh, like if you're, I don't know, ever seen Cool Hand Luke, the movie? It's a good movie. He's told, dig a, dig a hole. And then when you get it, fill it in. Then dig it again. Fill it in. Dig. It's pointless. That's not the case with our battle. Every single battle that we face, every spiritual warfare that we encounter, has a specifically designed strategic purpose in it. 
that our good commander has designed. Nothing that we do in spiritual warfare is done without purpose. There's always a meaning. It's always a just war. It's for God's glory and your joy. Every single battle you face has those two objectives. The glory of God and your joy. And right now you're thinking about certain circumstances in your life that aren't producing those two things, right? Well, be of good cheer, Christian friend. That's what the, per the point is. To bring glory to God through that circumstance and joy to you, God's loving soldier. It's a good fight. Next, it's a good fight because we benefit from fighting. It's, it's hard to say that about physical fight and physical warfare, right? Very few battles fought on the battlefields of human history have benefited the soldier. Very few soldiers come back from war talking about how great that was over in Vietnam or in Iraq. Very few come back better men. But our fighting benefits us personally. Our spiritual warfare has great results. We return from the battlefield, the spiritual battlefield, rejuvenated, encouraged, more mature, more joyful, and more in tune with our commanding officer, Jesus Christ. It benefits us greatly. This is a good battle. It's a good fight. You know, when you fight physically, it's, it hardens your heart. When you have a, a, an engagement with your spouse and you're fighting and selfishly demanding your own way, do you notice that it hardens both of your hearts? But every time that you enter a spiritual battle, what's it do? It softens your heart. What an amazing blessing. If your heart's been hardened, it hasn't come from Christ. If your heart is softened, then it comes from Christ. Then you know, oh, Jesus was with me in that battle. None of Christ's soldiers returned from warfare wishing they hadn't gone. Joyful Christianity is a good fight. And lastly, because the world benefits from our fighting. You know that the world benefits from your spiritual fight? Every other war in human history has very adverse effects on humanity, doesn't it? You've seen the pictures, you've heard the stories, the devastation, injury, heartache, waste, loss, mind-numbing stuff in physical battles and warfare. Our environment, though, when it's a spiritual matter, changes to black and white or from black to white. Our involvement in the world is a blessing, not a curse. Our role in human history has consistently been as spiritual warriors, the building up of physical, social, and spiritual health. Christ's soldiers have always been the source of law-abiding, neighbor-loving, community-helping encouragement. Our spiritual warfare is a good fight because it brings blessing and benefit to even the world who doesn't know Jesus. So, Christian warrior, where are you spending your energy in life? What are you doing with the energy that, that God has deposited in your account? You know it's limited, right? It ends the minute you stop breathing, and there's only a certain amount of energy in there. How are you spending that energy? 
Is it to make much of yourself in this world? To, to fight selfish personal battles to, to gain status or wealth or whatever? Or are you spending that energy for something eternal, something joy-inducing, something significant? Are you chasing worldly things? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. How are you spending your energy? Think about your past week. Think about the plans for this coming week. What's, how are you going to spend this God-given energy? For the right battle or the wrong one? Friends, for your own happiness sake, Sun Valley Church, for our happiness sake, I want to encourage you to go all in for the Lord's army. Rid yourselves of all those things that so easily wrap you up and tangle you up and misguide you. Take up the cross of Christ daily. Be a good soldier. This is the only thing that's going to bring that lasting joy that everybody in this room wants. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race or fight the battle the spiritual battle that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith that's where you're going to find the joy friends we, we, we've pursued our own agenda long enough and I think have proven to ourselves that that's joy's not there it's here in this battle in this fight so, friends, getting to, to conclude this today, I'll just say this about the last point on your outline. Getting joy requires God's Word. There's, there's the main battlefield, which is the point of verse 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. You want great joy? You must be in God's Word. Psalm 112.1, praise the Lord, blessed is the man, happy is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. That's what I want. And I'm pretty sure that you're with me on that. Let's make that our battle. Pray with me. Lord, it's so easy to choose the wrong battle, to get fatigued from being in a spiritual battle and many times not seeing the results that we'd hoped for. I pray that your spirit, Father, would come alongside each person in this room this morning and encourage their hearts with a true understanding of where our source of joy comes from, to help us think clearly, to guide our, our thoughts and ambitions and affections towards you and, and your word. Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus, our Savior, keep us from believing the lies that the world, the flesh, and the devil keep telling us. Help us to believe the promises of your word. Help us to live by faith. That what you say is true. That your word is the place 
of true and lasting joy. Help us to lean on the weapons you've provided in this, your spirit and your word and your church. Help us to enter bravely into this good fight. And we leave the results to you, trusting in your promises every day. Amen.